Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm Editor-in-Chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases, and today on our OFID podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Sherry Gorbach, Professor of Medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, and importantly for today's discussion, the Editor-in-Chief of what I think is one of the premier journals, if not the premier journal in ID today, and that's Clinical Infectious Diseases, or CID. Sherry has been editor-in-chief of CID since January of 2000, and next year the journal will be transitioned to a new editor, Dr. Chip Schooley. Sherry, welcome, and thank you for joining us today to discuss your time with CID. It's a pleasure to join you, Paul. So let's go back to when the transition happened. What made you want to be the editor-in-chief of a major journal? And also tell us a little bit about the transition process. I had started on my editing career as an apprentice to Ed Cass, who was the founder of the predecessor of CID, and it was named at that time Reviews in Infectious Diseases. And he asked me to join as an associate editor his board, and we met every week for almost 10 years until Ed passed away. This was a wonderful opportunity to learn about journal editing, about the mechanics of a review process, and to observe a critical but highly sympathetic editor who tried to establish a new journal and find a place for it in the many journals that are published in our field. After Ed passed on, the journal moved and eventually went to Los Angeles under Dr. Sid Feingold. In the meantime, I had um, taken on the editorship of a startup, which was called Infectious Diseases in Clinical Practice. It did pretty well. It's still in existence. But when I heard that um, Sid was retiring after putting in his 10 years of activity as editor, Uh, I thought that this would be a job that I would like. The title, as you mentioned, used to be Reviews of Infectious Diseases, and it's now the much more all-encompassing Clinical Infectious Diseases. It's really kind of a brilliant switch. Who came up with that title, and was there any resistance to making the change? I think it was under Sid Feingold's reign that the change was made. The editorial office was in Los Angeles, and I was in Boston, So all of that went on within their own circle, and it was announced, and there didn't seem to be any opposition to the idea, so the name held, and I think uh, they made a wise decision in that change. So what was it like taking over an existing journal? I can imagine there were a lot of logistical challenges. Well, you have to remember, uh, in the year 2000, we did not have electronic publishing. That means that everything was done in paper. So every submission had a white uh, folder which contained the uh, initial submission, various letters, and all the background materials and the correspondence back and forth between the editorial board and the authors and the reviewers. So it took up a lot of space. In those days, the journal was receiving about 1,500 manuscripts a year. And near the end, it became very difficult because the managing editor left and some of the associate editors left. So they accumulated a lot of manuscripts and they sent to us 25 cartons of manuscripts in various stages of production. 
So it was really quite a confusing start for our journal. Fortunately, I brought over with me Joan Daniels, who had worked for Ed Cass on reviews in infectious disease. And she became the managing editor of CID and really helped me through that transition of uh, 25 boxes. I don't think we got to all of the manuscripts. I don't know whatever happened to them, but uh, we did as best we could. And then we had to start over again. But fortunately, about four years later, we were introduced to electronic publishing, and that completely changed the process. What are some of the pros and cons of that switch to electronic publishing? Well, the cons are that it's painful for people who are not computer savvy. And that included most of the associate editors who are of an age where they didn't grow up with computer games. And so it was a struggle. We use Editorial Manager, which is a very good proprietary program. And it took time for our associate editors to learn how to make their way through the uh, process of receiving manuscripts, reviewing them, putting their review comments in, reviewing the uh, comments of reviewers, and making final decisions. It was quite a trial. But that is just a minor part of the issue because the benefits were so enormous, getting rid of those white folders. And it was just at a time that we were going into increasing activity in terms of submissions. So by the time we had electronic publishing, we were probably uh, around 2,200, manuscripts a year. And now this year, we are 3,600 manuscripts per year. And we could never have done that with the old paper trail. So it was fortuitous that the electronic editorial procedures became available just at the time we were seeing dramatic increases in submissions. Now, you've mentioned your editorial board a few times, and I know from my experience in OFID how critical that is. How do you go about selecting people for that activity? Well, they were mostly people who were experts in specific fields. So we ended up with 11 associate editors. And so there were people who were expert in antimicrobial agents. We had the virologist, a mycologist, someone from epidemiology and healthcare, infection, and so on. And the last person we we brought on was for the viral hepatitis area, which has grown enormously in our journal over the last two or three years. So a lot of my editors have been with me from the beginning. If I knew I was doing 17 years, I might have taken a break halfway and reappointed new editors. But I never had an idea when the end point would be until just near the conclusion. So I think now Chip Schooley is taking over. He's reinvigorating the associate editors, and that's all for the good for the journal. Now, you also have an editorial advisory board, I believe. What are their responsibilities? Well, at the beginning, I would meet with them once a year, and that still goes on. We do this at IDSA, although many of them are from overseas, and so they don't necessarily make it to the meeting. For several years, I sent them one issue each year and asked them to do a review of the issue, giving us the um, pluses and minuses of that particular issue 
what articles they thought were strong and which were weak and why and how we could change the journal. So I had a an annual feedback from about 30 associate editors. And then about three or four years ago, we came to realize that this editorial group of ours had probably peaked. We were not getting many criticisms and unfortunately not many suggestions. And it became clear that it was time for a new regime. So I stopped that practice and just continued to meet with them. And I do use them as reviewers. They do agree to uh, review two to five articles a year. So, Sherry, one of the things that we all grapple with is the issue of conflict of interest, in particular regarding relationships with industry. And uh, they're very tricky to manage. I'm just wondering what your approach has been. Well, we've had some rough times with this. I think our specialty is particularly vulnerable since we deal with treatments that are virtually all commercial and also diagnostics. So we're under tremendous pressure by pharma to carry materials related to to their products. And they send us in articles, review articles and original publications. So we have to be highly vigilant. And I'll say we've done a reasonable job, but we have occasionally dropped the ball and not seen that there were uh, industry people behind a specific article Our reviewers are particularly sensitive to this issue of pharma involvement, and I've made it very clear that we cannot exclude articles just because they originated or they have authors from pharma. That's not fair. But on the other hand, we do uh, subject those papers uh, to some scrutiny to make sure that the message is fair and balanced. So those are the guidelines fair and balanced. And we have to do some extra checking sometime to, uh, or extra reviewers to maintain that. We do, of course, subscribe to the um, policy of declaration of all potential conflicts of interest. We don't publish them all because it could be quite a list, but they are available for uh, inspection if, if any authors or organizations have a proper use for them. And we change our conflict of interest policy every two to three years to keep abreast of the rapid developments in this field. So our policies now are very different than they were 10 years ago. But it is a big challenge in our particular specialty and in our journal, since we are a clinical journal, and therefore it's necessary to carry up-to-date information about new therapeutics and new diagnostics. I think one other area of conflict that doesn't get nearly as much attention is academic conflict of interest, where you have, for example, people who are competing in the same field and hence might provide a negative review or other such challenges. We typically, at least in most settings, don't even talk about that. Do you ever consider that? Well, it's the most sensitive and most difficult area of review conflict to cope with. We invite all authors to give us the name of uh, individuals who they think would have a negative conflict of interest or have a conflict of interest such that they would not provide a fair review. And we have been very careful to avoid asking those individuals to review that paper. Nevertheless, you tend to pick experts and experts are often competitors 
we get two or three independent reviews for every manuscript, and then it goes to the associate editor, who is usually a specialist in that field. The associate editor has to balance that and see. And we do see a lot of that kind of negative conflict, and we have to put it in context of the whole issue. What do the other reviewers say? What does the associate editor say? And I will make the final decision on it. But it is a sensitive area, and uh, it's, of course, it's very difficult to have reviewers declare that particular frailty. What are your thoughts about the open access journal model of the pros and cons, and do you think it's uh, sustainable? Well, I had been somewhat dubious about whether it would work, but it's worked, and it's actually produced some very good, high-quality journals. Of course, there's also been some problems in that uh, I think many publishers, particularly small independent publishers, have figured out that they can uh, actually make a profit on charging authors for uh, publishing their papers rather than looking for subscribers. So there's been, I'd say, too many open access journals without good control of the editorial policy and with some sloppy reviewing. But that should not condemn the enterprise. I think overall it's been very positive. There, there are some excellent journals. I read some myself. And we just have to see how it goes and, and hope that there'll be some self-governing within these circles to make sure that, that only the best will survive. How have you dealt with issues such as research fraud or with retractions? And I'd be particularly interested to hear if you have some illustrative stories you'd like to share. Well, we've had a few retractions, and I can tell you that they can be very painful. We had an episode from Overseas Laboratory recently in which a paper was submitted, and then a rebuttal came in. Before the paper even went out for review, one of the senior colleagues of the group, not an author, complained that they had stolen the data and that the data was false. And the accuser, at least based on the letter we received, seemed to be pretty high up in what was the equivalent of the CDC of that country. And it became very dicey. And he made accusations and was going to sue us for publishing the paper. So we had a lot of investigation to do. We wrote to a lot of people and the authors submitted documents to establish that the work was done in their laboratory and they had notebooks to prove it. And so we wrote back to the accuser and said, while we have investigated this, we do not find a basis for refusing this article. And so we published the article. On the other hand, we have had occasion where letters have come in like that and have been accurate. One author, he was an ID consultant, and had seen in a very unusual case, and wrote it up and sent it in as a case report. It was an important case, and it looked very good. But then we began to get letters from the CEO and from the dead pathologist and uh, other important figures in the hospital claiming that this was a part-time consultant and he was not given permission for access now, that one did not get published, so I didn't have to retract it, but I didn't turn it down. We have had, fortunately, very few retractions. We tried to stop any malfeasance or difficulties before a paper gets published. 
So I would say we've probably had maybe five or so over these many years. There is a website on retractions, and they follow up on every retraction. So we have to answer to the editor of this website to justify in writing, and it is published, why we retracted a particular article. So we prefer to make these decisions in advance before we have to publish Absolutely. Very wise advice. Speaking of advice, do you have any advice for your incoming editor-in-chief, Chip Schooley? Chip has been an associate editor for the last decade at CID, so he knows the journal, he knows the system, he knows the field. I don't have to give Chip advice. Chip is very, very good, very independent, and will do an excellent job. I think he's fully competent to manage this journal. Well, Sherry, I want to thank you for this fascinating discussion. It really has been enlightening to hear about your experience. Again, uh, this is Paul Sachs, and I have been speaking with Dr. Sherry Gorbach, professor of medicine at Tufts University School of Medicine, and for the last 17 years, the editor-in-chief of Clinical Infectious Diseases. Thank you for joining us today.